Hello to you all. This is Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS, and this is the podcast version of New Mexico in Focus for Friday, December 6, 2019. Cannot believe this year is almost over, but we've got some great things in store for you before we get to 2020. This week, senior producer Matt Grubb sits down with Congresswoman Deb Holland to talk about a whole lot of different things, starting out with the impeachment process now going on in D.C. She even talks about why she thinks she already knows how she would vote if given the chance. Also, they talk about uh, missing and murdered indigenous women and her efforts there. And they talk about her endorsement of Elizabeth Warren as the Democratic candidate to run for president. Not long after we sat down with Deb, uh, she was actually announced as a co-chair of Elizabeth Warren's campaign. So we get a little insight into why she supports her and the race coming up next November. Also, we talk about broadband issues and public safety on tribal lands um, and restoring trust rights. Uh, Lots of great stuff there, so you want to definitely check that out. And then we got a full jam-packed line for this week for sure. Lots of great topics there. We start out talking about some of the um, school funding changes with the um, funding formula for schools. It's a little bit out of balance. This is not something that has been um, not known about, but it's something that's coming home to roost now. And largely affected will be small schools in large school districts. So we're talking about rural school districts. We're also talking about charter schools. It's designed to level the playing field, but it's putting a pinch on those particular entities. So we talk a little bit about that. Also talk about the news this week from Albuquerque and the police department that they recently announced crime stats, which seem to paint a pretty rosy picture, uh, were actually not quite as accurate as initially indicated. So we talk about not only what the new crime stats show, but how the uh, mistake happened and what the city's doing to correct them. We also talk about the previously mentioned fact that Deb Holland has such a prominent position in a presidential campaign coming up and what that might portend for her if Elizabeth Warren was to win the race next year. So we hope you'll tune in and listen. Let us know what you think about it. You know, we also need to come up with a nickname for all you podcast and show fans out there. Uh, We don't really have anything established yet, but we appreciate all of you that do watch and participate in feedback we've got lots of ways to do that we have twitter instagram facebook is where a lot of it happens on the new mexico and focus facebook page or our group focus on new mexico we'd love to hear from you there let us know what you all want to be called the new mexico and focus fanatics i don't know you let us know we'll talk to you next week Funding for New Mexico in Focus provided by the McCune Charitable Foundation and viewers like you. This week on New Mexico in Focus, we're face-to-face with Congresswoman Deb Holland as her profile grows during the presidential campaign. I've gone to Iowa twice. Um, I went to South Carolina a couple weeks ago to, um, you know, just to help her with house parties and talking to volunteers. Plus, Albuquerque has revised its crime statistics and the numbers aren't nearly as rosy. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. 
It's been less than a year since Deb Holland took office as one of the nation's first elected Native American women. Her profile has grown steadily since then. We'll talk to her about balancing political work with public policy. The Line Opinion panel also discusses Ms. Holland's new post as national co-chair of presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren's campaign. The Keller administration finds itself backtracking on one of the most important metrics Burkenos live by, crime stats. The administration now finds itself explaining an enormous discrepancy in the reporting out of those stats. We'll explore what happened. And a revamped funding formula and the resulting reduction of funds for smaller schools in large districts has some of those schools worried about keeping the doors open. Here's the line. Funding its public schools fairly has been a New Mexico challenge for, well, forever. We've watched attempts to balance the money given to wealthy and less affluent districts, to big ones and to small ones. Now, part of the education reform this time around is a long-debated adjustment to the small school funding. At the rate of a 20% reduction per year, the state is eliminating extra money given to those small schools and charter schools, by the way, in larger districts. As I said, it's long-debated. The debate is not over. Joining us at the table, add some insight and others, is this week's Line Opinion panel. Merritt Allen is here. She's the owner of Vox Optima Public Relations. The executive director of Prosperity Works and a new dad, Michael Barrio, is back with us as well. Line regular and public health consultant Michael Bird is at the table. And completing our group of opinion panelists is Giovanna Rossi. She's the president and owner of Collective Action Strategies. Welcome to you all. A big part of the issue is that charter schools in large districts have been benefiting from the law even though they weren't, weren't around when it was written in merit, fundamentally, is that fair? I think it's very hard to say. Mm -hmm. um, I spent um, a term on the Governing Council of East Mountain High School, which is a charter school in mm -hmm. East Mountains. Mm -hmm. And it is part of Bernalillo County APS, which is a very large urban school district, but mm -hmm. the East Mountains are not urban or large. That's right. That's right. And so, you know, there's also a small school. Um, I also look at um, my hometown, Silver City, mm -hmm. which almost seems to be trying to keep its population under 10,000 uh, people just to keep these funds flowing in. Mm -hmm. So uh, on, on both those sides, I feel like we've got some smaller rural communities who are stagnating growth to try and keep those funds going and misusing mm -hmm. those funds. And you have charter schools who just thought, well, this works. That's right. So their positions, we might as well just ask. And if right. someone gives us the money, it's okay. <laughs> right, you know, right, right. Exactly. Michael, you know, interestingly, is it, there, there's a lot of blame being put out there right now. The previous gubernatorial administration, the Martinez administration, and Hannah Scandera are being blamed for letting this sort of slide a little bit. But now you get this fixed situation where these schools are going to lose 20% of their money for the next five years to bring it down to some parity with public schools. Again, I ask the same question about fairness. Is it fair? Who's, who's it being unfair to? Are charter schools being unfairly treated here? Because they're just doing what they thought was okay. Well, it would appear to me that um, a number, you know, it's always, when something goes wrong, everybody's very quick to blame someone else. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not going to help with this, with this issue. Mm -hmm. I think what needs, everybody needs to step up and recognize that you've, what I see is, is two contrary sort of mandates um, and uh, that, are, that are now rising to the surface and so really what it requires is everybody sitting down and saying okay we've got we've got a problem here mm -hmm. and what are we going to do to address it what are we going to what's it going to take to fix it right and make it right because it's not 
in, 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 the, in the short term and in the long term, nobody's going to benefit unless we, we get it right. That's right. That's right. Michael Barrio, here's the fix that, w that happened in the legislature. The old definition of a small school, in finger quotes, was 200 for elementary and middle school and 400 for high school. Now, that only applies to school districts with fewer than 2,000 total students. You see the problem here? That's not going to work for Albuquerque, obviously. We have more than 2,000 students. Or if you're a small school inside an APS, you're out now. And so the problem for these people running these charter schools say they have to do one of two things, either grow or add more students. It's almost like a perverse <laughs> incentive to grow. It's very interesting. And sometimes growth isn't always um, tenable. Right. right. It's not always a viable thing. And, and, and I don't think that that's, that should be a central focus of the school anyway, is growth. Growth, like a business, right? Yeah. Right. I think yeah. the point is education. And mm -hmm. there's been, I think this debate for me really kind of, it kind of gets on my nerves because it, we've been having debates about how we, um, address and fund education in the state for so long mm -hmm. that this particular argument, this, this debate, seems like it really only serves to protract the argument and make, you know, are we making some decisions and, and you know, doing some moonshot education things here? Mm -hmm. Or are we, you know, are we quibbling over something like that? And, and I know it's a lot of money, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, one of the things that I, that I looked up and um, that was concerning to me was the number of, of charter schools that actually um, rec have receive funding from this particular thing, I think it's something like 46% um, of charter schools. I, I got you covered. Between 2009 yeah. and 2015, yeah, 46% of all the increases in funding for public education went to charter schools, even right. though they serve only 7% 7 of 7%. students. 7%. That's, that's, so, that's called imbalance, right? That's, that's, that's just not, imbalance. right. And so, you know, from a personal and professional perspective, I have to wonder, you know, let's think about how we're actually investing in our students and what kind of workforce and future we'd like to see. Right, exactly right. You know, one of the things, Giovanna, I have to say about charter schools and versus public, everyone thinks it's about favoritism and all this, but that number that Michael Barrow just brought up, the 46% for only 47% of the students being served, a lot of people have heartburn in the public school system about that. And they have been for a while. They've talked about this for a number of years. Are we back to a fair place? I'm back to that fairness issue. Once this five years goes by and the charter school thing gets back to a public education level, is everyone being treated fairly at that point? Um. So that's going to depend on, you know, uh, how the legislature proceeds with all of the, the funding formula. And mm -hmm. um, I think that it's not a surprise, though, that this is happening, right? I mean, the Legislative Education Study Committee back in 2014 was meeting that's right. to talk about the need to change the size adjustment. So mm -hmm. um, I think some charter schools have been preparing for this yes. and some mm -hmm. haven't. And it, it's good. It's definitely going to be, you know, difficult for yeah. those for yeah. those that are seeing their budgets cut. Good, Michael. Yeah, I, I, I guess one of the things that, and I'm, I'm clearly this is not my area of expertise, but, mm -hmm. but one of the things that that I think needs to happen is to go back and look at how 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 did this all evolve in terms of public education, and in a sense, 
public education versus charter schools. Right. And there's, uh, there are some, I think, values and phil philosophical differences that have driven all of this. Uh, because in back in the day, at least when I remember and was in school, it was all public education, and there were private schools, but there were no charter schools. Right. So how did this how how did this all come about? Because I think th it's those forces, that history, that context that we all need could maybe get better. Was it a situation we rushed to charter schools at one point a few years ago? There was a there was a big right. land rush almost. It was interesting. Did we lose, did, did I get off the ball here, Merritt Allen? Did something get not? Well, and, and to your point, the point of charter schools mm -hmm. was to inject some competition right. into the school system. Mm -hmm. And certainly in New Mexico, we could use that mm -hmm. uh, given the performance of, uh, of our public schools. And I think uh, you, you, you saw two things come up. You came, uh, had very, uh, serious schools like Cottonwood Classical, like East Mountain High, these really serious schools mm -hmm. that have lotteries to get in mm -hmm. because they are making it work and they're, they're the schools who are going to survive this. Right. Then you've got these kind of fly-by-night schools <laughs> and uh, kind of uh, educational theory of what's happening now schools. And that's kind of degraded the charter school brand. And then you... We're all talking about Albuquerque, and mm -hmm. there are charter schools, of course, across the state. Mm -hmm. But APS is too big to care about charter schools, mm -hmm. so they're not going to—they're not going to see a charter school as a competitor. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. Except for cash. Right. They're a competitor for money. Let me ask you a question, though. With your experience at the charter school, one of the things that jumped out at me in the reporting on this is some of the charter school folks. The sweet spot is about 700 for students to be, to be profitable to make sure the doors are gonna stay open. A lot of schools are not gonna be able to manage a, a, an increase to 700 some odd students. They don't have the infrastructure for it, they don't have the buildings for it, now they don't have the money for it. Teachers. T teachers, you have to hire the whole <laughs> thing. You see the problem here? There's something, you know, forcing these people to grow just seems like a lit fuse for some of these folks. They're not gonna make it across the finish line, it seems to me. Well, and also, I, I, the, the reason so many parents like charter schools mm -hmm. is that they're smaller. Right. And they feel that they have more access to uh, the staff and that their child is getting more attention because they're one of 300 instead of one of that's 800. Right. That's right. So uh, I, I think I think that's, that's a real challenge and it does challenge the very nature of charter schools. I think, um, APS and I think this administration's PED mm -hmm. um, absolutely want to challenge the existence of charter schools and make it difficult. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Gene, one Please. of the questions, what about diversity, ah. equity? Right. What, how is that reflected mm -hmm. in this process? That's because right. my, 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 my instinct would tell me that, that, the, that the students of color, students that are challenged are the ones that are in the public school system right. mm -hmm. and not not in charter schools. Yeah. So what about equity? What about fairness? What about um, diversity and, and the value in that? So I, I don't know it's if anyone's looking at access. that. Right. Mm -hmm. How do you make APS care about that? Because they haven't for decades. That's right. Well, <laughs> interesting point. This is but, one of those ongoing topics I'm sure we're going to talk about again. Now, for now, though, Michael, we're going to leave it right there. After the break, we're one-on-one -on -one with Congresswoman Deb Holland. It was rushed, there's mm -hmm. no question. I think the response that, that they need upgrades of software is, is probably correct. Mm -hmm. it, it's unfortunate that it took this to figure that out. It seems like the APD heads right. would have known that That's before. Right.
Deb Holland already had a high profile when she went to Congress as one of the first Native women elected to the House of Representatives in 2018. She's since carved out a prominent place in progressive politics. Recently, NMIF producer Matt Grubb sat down with her to talk about the issues she's prioritizing and Holland's return to Washington, D.C. Well, thank you so much for coming in My and pleasure. joining us. Thank you. Um, I want to set the scene for our viewers as we speak. Uh, the House Intelligence Committee has wrapped two weeks of public testimony, mm -hmm. and, and we're now in the Thanksgiving break. Um, in August, you said you supported the impeachment mm -hmm. inquiry. Where do you stand now? I support the impeachment inquiry. And I, I should add that I'm thoroughly, thoroughly impressed and appreciative of the work that uh, our chairman, Adam Schiff, has done. Um, it's, he has brought just amazing professionalism uh, to those hearings, and I couldn't be prouder to serve with him. So um, I think that's what the American people needed to see. And um, the transparency, the, you know, letting them hear the truth uh, from the witnesses that were brought into the hearing room. And uh, so um, I, I'm, I, I'm appreciative of all the work that everyone has done on this. Do you feel as though you've heard enough to actually say that you'll vote for impeachment and that he should be removed from office? Um, you know, when you have people testifying that they heard the president over the phone, um, essentially, you know, asking the president of Ukraine to do his political bidding, um, it's pretty clear that, um, you know, he, he, he was brought, you know, he's bribing the president of Ukraine. Um, you know, do me a favor, though, before I let the funding that Congress appropriated to you. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's, it's no one is above the law. And yes, the president needs to be held accountable. Okay. Um, would you, do you think, feel the same way if um, there wasn't a presidential election next year? Um, obviously, the, the idea that, well, maybe you could just vote him out six, eight months later um, would be a factor. Does that so, well, I mean, the, the United States Congress has a duty to uh, hold the president, the administration accountable. That is one of our charges under the Constitution of the United States. And um, we have an obligation to the people of this country. Um, I don't think we should let politics enter into this issue right now, right? Like thinking, oh, well, there's an election coming around the corner. Um, we have an obligation right now, and I think we need to exercise it. Um, the woman you've uh, endorsed uh, in the Democratic race mm -hmm. for president um, certainly has has been um, one of the early goers for impeachment. She she said even before we knew about this phone call that there was reason enough um, with the Mueller report to impeach him. Mm -hmm. um, you, you did jump in pretty early to endorse. What sealed it for you? For uh, my endorsement of Elizabeth Warren? Well, she's um, she's a friend of mine. She is a champion for working families. Uh, I, I mean, she's outspoken. She is, she is, she's, she's working so hard to make sure that working families have opportunities at success. As she says, the government works great for those at the top. It doesn't work too well for folks who, um, who aren't making enough money, even though they're working 40 hours a week or more. Um, 
she's also been um, a, a strong ally for Indian country. Right now, her and I have several bills that we've co-sponsored together. Uh, one of those is the Honoring Promises to Native Nations Act. That's to make sure that the U.S. government uh, keeps its uh, trust obligations to tribes. Another one is a universal child care bill that will help every single parent uh, in this country uh, to, to find childcare, uh, you know, and sometimes that is the biggest worry that parents have. And uh, she, she, is, she is an undisputed champion of working families. Uh, there was nobody better uh, for me uh, to endorse. Do you think you'll be active on the campaign trail in some of these early? I have, yes, okay, I have yeah. been already, yes. I, I've, got, I've gone to Ohio twice, I'm sorry, oh, Iowa twice. I've gone to Iowa twice. Um, I went to South Carolina a couple of weeks ago to, um, you know, just to help her with house parties and talking to volunteers and voters and, um, you know, holding events. It's, uh, I, I love campaigning. I've done it for a long time here in New Mexico for almost the past 20 years, working to get uh, folks out to vote all over uh, the state. And so uh, it's, uh, I, I enjoy campaign season. You enjoy campaign I do. season, and <laughs> yeah. you told me before we taped you enjoy Washington D.C. I do. I know you don't. I, you probably don't things. hear that that often. <laughs> now, Washington D.C. You know, my dad was a 30-year career Marine, and he was stationed at Quantico, okay. Virginia. That's the Marine Corps base near D.C. And he was also stationed at Virginia Beach. So we spent a lot of time in D.C. when I was a kid. That that's you know when you used to be able to drive up to the White House and go inside. Oh sure. <laughs> Now you can't do that anymore. Um, and so uh, I, I essentially grew up in the area uh, a lot of my childhood. And, and uh, it's changed a lot, but it's the same. And, and I, I just admire how hard everybody's working to move our country forward. And, and you know, they're there in D.C. Sure. Well, we have a few things that we want to get to mm -hmm. today. Um, I want to talk to you about rural broadband, mm -hmm. about missing and murdered indigenous women, um, about climate change and maybe a little nuclear storage. I will let you choose where you'd like to start. Did you say missing and murdered? Yeah. Yeah, let's start there. Yeah. Let's start there because that moves into broadband also, right? Okay. Like. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Communication and connectedness is something that will help that issue. And, and data, we spoke in, in July to a couple of advocates, uh, Christina Castro and Cheyenne Antonio, mm -hmm. um, about this. And they said that one of the biggest challenges was getting data, was sort of recognizing the scope of the problem. Um, how do you feel we're doing in, in that respect? So there's, I just want to make sure that everyone knows that this issue, missing and murdered indigenous women, it's an issue that's been ongoing since the Europeans came to this country in the late 1400s. It's not a couple generations old um, issue. It's a crisis that has been in the making for centuries. Um, and, you know, we think about uh, Sacagawea, who went with Lewis and Clark on uh, that, you know, she's portrayed as, oh, she just went with them because she wanted to uh, help them. Uh, yes, but I mean, what really happened there, right? She was taken away from her community and her family to traverse the entire country. Um, we, this is an issue that's been ongoing. Um, there's no question that genocide was committed on Native American, um, Native Americans here in this country when Europeans came to make way for um, you know, the United States. 
And so it's not like one bill isn't going to fix this. It's going sure. to be a series of things. Um, and I, I want to start real quick with uh, the Not Invisible Act of 2019. That um, was an historic bill co-sponsored by the four uh, enrolled members of Indian tribes in the Congress, uh, Tom Cole, Mark Wayne Mullen, Sharice Davids, and myself. Uh, that will create a committee of uh, law enforcement officers, uh, tribal leaders, advocates, uh, victims, advocates, and victims or their families uh, to essentially tell Congress what it is we need to do. I think those voices are important in, in you know, flagging things that perhaps we would miss because we're not on the ground the same way they are. Okay. Um, so that that's an important issue. We also have, uh, there were two, um, uh, there were two amendments that I have in the Violence Against Women Act that is going through the ringer right now on the Republican side uh, because the bipartisan bill that we passed in the House is not the one that uh, some Republicans are putting up right now. But um, we need funding to make sure that uh, victims of violence, ur ur urban Indians who are victims of violence in state courts have victim advocate services and that we're also, um, you know, they can also advocate for uh, funding for programs and, and so forth. So, um, so all, I mean, all of those things, we have Savannah's Act, that's the uh, data sharing um, okay. uh, bill. Uh, that's also important. Uh, the Badges Act will streamline uh, the way that the, uh, that the federal government hires Bureau of Indian Affairs police officers, which there's a shortage, shortage of right now. A huge shortage. Yes, it? yes. And I mean, you think about here in New Mexico, if I were to stand um, in the middle of the Navajo Nation, even in my district, and, um, you know, try to call 911 if I were being in danger of being assaulted, I likely wouldn't get any bars on my phone. So, um, and even if I did... Uh, calling, uh, calling the BIA police, it could take them two or three hours to get uh, to the location. So, um, so we need more law enforcement in tribal communities. And um, with respect to the Violence Against Women Act, we, it's imperative that we pass the bipartisan bill that was passed in the House. Uh, the Republican bill that the Republicans put up, I think they uh, filed it yesterday, uh, during Native American Heritage Month, which was a little ironic. Um, it really strips tribal courts of their ability to, uh, to prosecute uh, people who commit crimes, uh, violent crimes against Native women on tribal lands. So, uh, so we, we just continually need to fight for this issue. Um, yeah, so we're, we're making some headway, um, but it's it's not you know it's not going to be an overnight fix. It's going to take a long time for us to to move this forward. And going back real quick to the honoring promises to Native Nations Act, one component of that funding bill, that appropriations bill, will be for public safety in Indian Country. Okay. Okay. Yes. Um, there are the legislative um, ways to address this that you just talked mm -hmm. about. Um, there's kind of the the on the ground um, coordination aspect of it within your district too. Do you feel like locally, um, the FBI, the U.S. Attorney's Office, are they paying enough attention to this? No. No, they're not. They, the FBI needs to pay more attention to this. Um, you know, when I think about uh, the FBI, the FBI got its start solving the Osage murders. 
It, uh, it, ho it really honed its investigative skills uh, by investigating the murders that happened on the Osage Nation um, back in the early 1900s. And so um, I think the FBI, uh, they could probably, if they were able to uh, really concentrate on this issue, they, um, they could probably do some good, right? Um, currently, the FBI sort of picks and chooses the crimes that it investigates in Indian country right now. And, um, and so, you know, missing persons, if, I mean, that's usually a lot of, a lot of times that's how a missing and murdered indigenous women case will start is, oh, you know, we haven't seen our cousin for right. three days. And um, is that right? Is that an issue? Is that a case that the FBI will come out and start investigating immediately? So um, there are so, you know, we need to just be aware of, of, of how, you know, the, the nuances of every single, of every single piece of the issue and, um, and just work towards solving it. Um, is there, speaking just kind of generally, do you have a preferred approach to, to solving some of the issues that come before you um, legislatively or sort of acting as that, as that project manager within your district? So I think that um, we do need legislation and we need, uh, we need funding legislation. Okay. It's, Indian country is drastically underfunded when it comes to public safety. Um, you know, tri tribal courts, I'll give you an idea. When I was in law school, I graduated in 2006. I think I did my clinic in 2005. Um, I held the first jury trial as a student attorney out at Laguna Tribal Court. Uh, the very first criminal jury trial. Um, they had never had one there before. They're using the jury box for a storage space. Wow. And uh, so there are a lot of tribal courts um, in, around the country that need funding so they can exercise their ability to try cases and to, you know, the courts are, uh, they, ne they need to be exercised. They need to be used so that they can perfect, you know, their, their systems and things like that. So, um, so I'm, all, I'm, I'm completely in favor of making sure that the federal government fund, lives up to its trust responsibility and funds um, these programs uh, within Indian country. And, and absolutely one of those is public safety and of course the other is uh, the justice system. Sure, sure. Um, uh, rural broadband touches a little bit on that and also uh, mm -hmm. impacts everyone. You know, you look at the, uh, the mm -hmm. southeast corner of your district, mm -hmm. um, you know, that deals with some access issues mm -hmm. as well. Um, where are we on that? What are you pushing for? Well, we are, I mean, we need it. Right, <laughs> right? Right. I'm just pushing <laughs> for it all the time. We, uh, and it's not just, you know, I was, I was uh, the other day I was giving a speech somewhere and I said, Every single, you know, myself, Ben Ray Lujan, Sochil, Torres Mall, every single one of us have rural communities in our districts. Every single one of us. New Mexico is mostly rural. They're, they're, I mean, we are, uh, you drive 10 minutes out of Albuquerque and you're in a rural community. Um, the, the broadband, um, cell phone towers, all these communication uh, have always been a challenge for us and we just need to get it done. Um, I feel fortunate that uh, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham is, she's dedicated to this issue as well. 
And so uh, we'll work together to, um, yeah, to just keep keep that moving forward. Do you have a sense of what the best way to kind of address that in terms of funding is? Um, you, you know, you look up in um, Representative Lujan's district mm -hmm. in Espanola, they ran into some real issues with a $10 million grant uh, up near Espanola, and they didn't end up with near the kind of fiber optic infrastructure they wanted because there wasn't sort of oversight um, of the agencies that were implementing these grants. Um, is there a better way to approach that? Well, I'm sure with respect to that issue, right, we learned from that okay. fully. So, um, so I, I, I assume that, um, I mean, look, we, nobody wants to waste taxpayer money, right? We all want, we all want our projects to work well. Sometimes um, perhaps you, 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 le you learn from your mistakes, so to speak. So we'll, um, I think we'll know better moving forward and um, we just need to get moving on it, right? And, um, I think at this point, um, the federal government needs to fund projects that will connect people. Okay. Because it means the world to uh, students, right? Having internet service uh, is imperative for educational opportunities. It's imperative for healthcare with all of the telemedicine and uh, this wonderful ECHO program that we have right. going right now at UNM. Um, it is imperative. Uh, you know, it could, it could, that could be a, 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 a gateway to, to healing our communities in so many ways. And so we, we, we just have, I think we have an obligation to see it through and make it work. Okay. We just have a couple minutes left here okay. already. Um, but I did want to talk about climate change. Um, it just, one of the things mm -hmm. that strikes me is I, I'm just not sure why we're still debating this. Um, I'm not sure either. Right, I'm not sure either. Uh, I mean, I am. I know why we're not. Why we're still debating it? It's because there's um, uh, there are people uh, in this country who who are working very, very hard to protect the gas and oil industry uh, without reservation. And um, I personally feel yes, we have a big gas and oil industry here in New Mexico. Exactly. Um, I don't think the gas and oil industry needs to frack and drill in every single inch of our state. Um, and not only that, but they have an obligation to have a clean industry. And we know that there's a big methane cloud floating above northwestern New Mexico uh, that needs to be cleaned up. And um, and so I think we can explore. Uh, renewable energy revolution in New Mexico at the same time uh, that the gas and oil industry is working very hard as they should be to uh, clean up their industry to you know keep the methane from leaking out of those pipes and all of and all of these things but we we can explore renewable energy uh, we can make uh, renewable energy a reality it's cheaper it's cleaner it will create thousands of jobs right here in New Mexico um, we can do both of those things at the same time. That's kind of one of the things that I, I wanted to touch on um, before we wind up here is that um, there seems to be this idea that uh, perhaps we're, we're kidding ourselves um, that there's a way out of this that doesn't hurt economically. Um, do you feel like there's enough 
job growth potential there in renewables that I do that we can sort of work on solving the climate crisis? I absolutely do, and we need to we need to have an infrastructure package in the federal government that will make sure that states and communities uh, have the resources to to build that infrastructure. Right? Um, I mean, think about I mean just. Think about right now if you, we have a bill in, in the Congress that, we're, that I think we filed yesterday. Uh, it's to move all of our federal buildings toward 100% renewable energy. Um, how many people do you think it would employ to uh, retrofit every single federal building in the country sure. for uh, solar panels or you know, whatever it is that we're doing? We, um, I think it will create a lot of jobs, more than people realize. Um, but I, I, I feel like it, we've had enough of excuses. Our planet's burning up, right? There's wildfires everywhere. There were wildfires, there were fires in Alaska of all places this past summer. Um, we've seen temperatures that uh, should scare anybody in places where it should not be, uh, where temperatures should not be rising. And so uh, we have got to do something about climate change. Uh, it's undeniable. Um, every, every single day you pick up the newspaper, there's a story on the effects of climate change and how they're, and, and the sad part of it is, is they, that it affects the folks who can least afford it, right? Sure. So, uh, so we have an obligation, I think, to to remedy this situ, do whatever we can to remedy the situation. We well, thank you so much for thank your you. time and thank we look you. forward to sitting down with you again. Thank you. You bet. We're back to the line now. And just a couple of hours after that interview, Democratic presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren named Ms. Holland a co-chair of her presidential campaign. Much of her duties have yet to be announced, but Giovanna, there's something in this symbolically too. Very interesting, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, just the announcement in general. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, the, the three co-chairs, they're all women. Yep. Um, and uh, Congressman Holland is not, it's, it's not a new thing, right? She's been involved uh, with Senator Warren and um, has been, they've been allies. And mm -hmm. um, I think it's going to be really interesting. I think it's great. It's, it's really lifting the, um, the level, uh, the issues for both women and also the, um, Native American community. So I think it's going to be really interesting to mm -hmm. watch, see how this unfolds. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Michael, you know, when we th talk about co-chairs and what they do, uh, you can hear that term and, okay, that sounds great. What's a co-chair? <laughs> what, what happens there? But interestingly, the, the, our representative is going to be out in this country representing a presidential candidate. And that's no small thing, especially for a Native American woman to be doing that kind of heavy lifting. That's no small thing in this country. It's interesting. What's your thoughts there? Well, I, I, I guess I would say it's about time. Yeah. Past time. Yeah. Um, and I think it, it'll be good for, for, for our representative, Representative Holland. I think it'll be good for New Mexico mm -hmm. because it also emphasizes, um, I think it's, it's a win all across the board, mm -hmm. but specific to the Native community, having a Native woman out there operating at that level is, is, is new and exciting. And I think it continues to emphasize something that hasn't been taking place in this country, mm -hmm. and that is a, nat a Native woman voice at the table 
articulating our concerns, our issues, but also speaking about New Mexico's issues, rural issues, right. um, exactly. underserved communities, That's right. um, communities that, I mean, we know what New Mexico already is, and both the assets and, and, and the negative aspects as well. Right. But I think she will rep represent us very well and, and bring, to the, bring, to attention, bring some attention to issues that have been ignored and marginalized uh, for quite some time. Mm -hmm. So I think it, it's, a, it's, it's really a win no matter how you look at it. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes, Michael Barrio, these things come down to being, picking the right horse, so to speak, at the right time. It's, it's sort of a horse race. But Deb Holland came out in July and endorsed Elizabeth Warren. She was pretty early on this situation. That counts for something in politics, you know it what I mean? If you're on the team early, yeah. you know. Um, it's interesting. I mean, it makes sense. Um, the, the news wasn't particularly shocking sure. or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, but what intrigues me most about it is that um, I want to I wanna understand a little bit more about, you know, how it, now that we've got, um, uh, our congresswoman in this in this position, mm -hmm. um, how can she further shine light on the issues that are um, important to New Mexico mm -hmm. and what the indigenous people in New Mexico, um, in particular, face? Uh, because you know what I'm what I think we're not seeing is that you know the structure of the relationship between the federal government and tribes hasn't really changed, mm -hmm. and so that's where I'm interested in seeing how um, Congresswoman Holland, um, being part of this team, will begin to work on that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's um, the piece that I'm really interested in, mm -hmm. in watching unfold. Very much so. Merritt, interestingly, we gotta put this on the table just to kinda get it out there. What does this do to the situation with Senator Warren with her claims now, you know, debated forever about her Native American ancestry. Does this change any of that, having Deb Holland come I, I think on that's a, I think that's a fairly minor issue, mm -hmm. and I don't see this as a Is it put to bed completely at this point? Okay. I, 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 don't, I don't, and I certainly don't think uh, Representative Holland was, would allow herself to be used as a symbol like that. So I, I think that's kind of over. Mm -hmm. My real interest is, we saw this in 2008. Who in New Mexico is gonna be the Democratic kingmaker? Mm. So we haven't heard from Congressman Lujan yet. Uh, we haven't heard from the governor yet. Um, who are they backing? Because, you know, we were all in for Clinton until Governor Richardson changed his mind. Right. And he still didn't deliver in the primary. Right. Uh, uh, New Mexico still went for uh, uh, Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. So I'm really eager to see how this, uh, how this plays out. Mm -hmm. Because um, while uh, the Republicans are you know, completely focused on the incumbent. Uh, I don't know that the Democrats are really unified around a single candidate yet, and I think that's the biggest ri risk we have in, in impeachment is it does not allow them to focus. So I, I think Representative Holland is being shrewd in picking her candidate and getting out there. Right. Uh, it, it gives her more time and gives her the ability uh, to be that kingmaker. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. Michael, do you want to pick up on that question I asked Merritt about Elizabeth Warren and the whole controversy about her? Native American heritage, does this change anything, bringing on Deb Holland? I mean, it's not that it's like it's been out there for, for months and months. It's over, like Merritt said. But you know how politics works. People like to bring up stuff endlessly. So, Well, we, 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 the current occupant of the White House likes to bring up a lot of things. Yeah. And most of them are irrelevant um, and, and not really substantive. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, at least for me and I think the Indian community in general, uh, but I'll speak for myself. Is it's it's a non it's a mm -hmm. non issue. Mm -hmm. It's um, 
you know, she 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 made an she presented before a national group of native leaders mm -hmm. and made an apology. Mm -hmm. As far as I'm concerned, it's over and done. It's a non-issue. Mm -hmm. um, it's really about taking up Michael's point. Um, it's really about the kind of relationship she has with Elizabeth Warren, and you you can see a, you can see some substantive policy that that uh, mm -hmm. Senator Warren is moving on that really reflect the needs and the interest of Native communities. Mm -hmm. Her, yeah, her platform actually on, on the Native American, like her policy position is, is really strong. It's probably one of the strongest out of all of the presidential candidates. Um, it includes, you know, things that are really important to the Native American community, environment, health, nutrition assistance, lots of different things. One thing it has been criticized for is it doesn't actually address the structural relationship between the federal government and the tribes yet, mm -hmm. but there's room for that, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it is one of the strongest plans, and um, uh, Representative Holland, I think, is going to not only help bring those issues to the top, which she is doing with, uh, you know, specifically for the Native American community, mm -hmm. but I think she's also going to bring issues um, that are relevant for everybody through that lens, which right. is so important, and right. it's such a big distinction between just simply being a Native American mm -hmm. voice versus a voice for everyone with that lens, and, gotcha. it, and that's a very different thing. Interesting quote here. Um, I'm glad you brought that up, by the way, because there's a quote from Ms. Holland about um, Elizabeth Warren. She is a sister in the struggle for indigenous people's rights. Yes. That's pretty, you know, she, I, I wouldn't think Deb Holland would say that casually. Right. Let's put it that way. Mm. So, you know. And to your point, I think that in many ways, there, there's a basis of indigenous knowledge and wisdom in this nation that has been no, marginalized, marginalized and ignored. Mm -hmm. And I would dare say, I'll go so far as to say, had we listened, had we been listening to native people from day one, we might not be facing many of the issues we're facing today. And, and specifically when we're talking about in the environment and global warming, had we recognized that the earth is a finite entity, not infinite. Mm -hmm. If you operate on the concept that it's a finite entity with limited resources, then you would approach things in terms of economic development, in terms of just a relationship with the earth in a very different way. And this nation and the world at large, but this nation being the blueprint for much of everything that's rolled out in the world, has, 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 has really chosen to ignore that. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it, I would say it's at our peril and at our, our, our door right now. Yeah, mm -hmm. Good point in real there. Time. It's interesting, Merritt, I gotta talk just a minute here. So let's talk about the national race. If, Ms. War, if, if Elizabeth Warren gets the nomination, is there a role for Deb Holland once it's one-on-one -on -one between the president and Elizabeth Warren? What, what would a role be, what, in your view? Gosh, I don't know, but yeah. I, I mean, certainly I would think um, she might be looking at cabinet um, if she, uh, I mean, that, that's certainly what Bill Richardson was hoping for that's when right. he uh, uh, backed Obama. That's right. If I can in this last minute, I just want to, my concern is if whoever the kingmaker's gonna be pushes New Mexico for Warren, um, we're gonna have a very polarized presidential race in New Mexico because she's very, very left of center. Mm -hmm. And the Republicans are just, I don't even know where they're moving, um, but it's not the center. 
That's a good point. You know, you, uh, yeah. I said it on the show before. The only, the only person, uh, the only two candidates who uh, like tariffs as much as Donald Trump are Warren and Sanders. That's right. That's right. Well, the, the, also the, our June primary. How relevant are we going to be by June right. for, in all this too? So we'll see what happens there. We're going to take a quick break here at the table, reset, and come back to talk about revised crime statistics for Albuquerque. New Mexico in Focus is on Twitter and Facebook. Follow us online to get updates on upcoming shows and tell us what you think about the top news stories of the week. Then tune in because we may share your comments on the line. Back in July, Mayor Tim Keller and APD Chief Michael Geyer held a news conference to present a glowing report about how crime statistics had gone down significantly. Revised numbers, however, tell a much different story. The mayor chalks it up to short staffing, software glitches, and a rush to get info out to the public. But he adds that statistics keep changing as the city gets more specific data. Fair enough. But Giovanna, from a PR point of view, this looks pretty awful to have to backtrack on something so huge as crime statistics. This is not about other innocuous stats. This is the number one metric that we're all concerned about here. How have you taken the response from the administration uh, from this? Um, so I think that in politics now, you know, our representatives and our elected officials are really pressed to show improvement, like immediately, right. and this, this fast turnaround. And I think that 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 the administration kind of fell into that game a little bit. Um, I don't think he needed to do that. It was a decision to to do it, though. Um, to, to make these announcements quarterly? To make the announcement okay. so early yeah. without, I mean, you know, I, I've done data analysis for many years. You check and you double check and you triple check and, you know, before you release anything because you need that integrity and, and the integrity of the data to stand. Um, so, you know, it was rushed. There's mm -hmm. no question. I think the response that, that they need upgrades of software is is probably correct. Mm -hmm. it, it's unfortunate that it took this to figure that out. It seems like the APD heads right. would have known that That's before. Right. <laughs> but, Let me uh, pick up on that with Michael, as a matter of fact. It's interesting you mentioned that. Do you buy that as well, this idea that these folks have been functioning for two some years and no one's really never. rang the bell about this. I, I just I, that's hard for me to believe when anyone says that about anything. Right. Um, <laughs> because you know, after a certain amount of time, those kinds of things that are procedural or revolving around policy tend to surface rather quickly. And so, yeah. you know, I, I I take it for you know a lot. I agree with a lot with what Giovanna says in in terms of you know politicians have a lot of pressure to to. Uh, you know, make numbers and mm -hmm. make a big, big sweeping changes. But especially so for crime. And right? yeah, especially you think, here. You think about the campaign, of, uh, Mr. Right. Keller coming into office, so that's, talking about crime. This was the thing. So not, not unusual to keep us abreast of it. But was this the right way to go? I quarterly. I don't know if it was the right way to go quarterly. I think it makes sense from uh, from maybe a PR sense for some. Um, but this is, I think, this shows what what can happen whenever mm -hmm. something goes wrong. And to be fair, the crime has gone down. But I think in order to really talk about this situation is, and it was in a quote that, that the mayor had said, and I don't remember what the quote was, but I think before we can substantive, substantively talk about whether or not crime is going down or up or how it's increasing or, or not mm -hmm. is, um, what is our definition of crime and what are we including in that? Are we, are we not counting the nonviolent offenses? Are we not counting, you know, because 
And another thing is that I think a lot of the public is not feeling like crime has gone down. Thank you. Um, but a point, uh, an important point for me... And, th I, and this feeds into that feeling, doesn't it? That you've yeah. got these, you've got these, I'll turn this to, to Michael Byrd on this, you've got this perception that crime is not going down, but the administration's saying, yes, it has been going down significantly, but then it turns out our instincts were actually correct. It hasn't gone down that much, or, or enough to be celebratory, certainly. So what, what's your sense of this, and what does the administration do now? I mean, I was interested watching that Pat Davis uh, grilling in the city council Monday night that the APD chief was uh, chief of staff was getting. And you could tell city council was not happy with the answers they were getting. And they shouldn't be, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, well like in an, with an issue like this, mm -hmm. you have to make sure you, you, you do it right, number one. And, um, and, the, and the fact of the matter is that, I mean, the, um, it, it, didn't, it didn't happen in the way it should. I mean, and, and at stake is the credibility of the mayor and his office and his staff, so that that's a that's a hit, and they're going to really have to do something to rebound from that. I believe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think the other part of it, though, and and the the head of the U police union kind of jumped in right away and said, too many uh, too many press conferences and not enough uh, mm -hmm. not enough police. Right. And 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 yeah, one can one can appreciate that, but at the same time, I guess for me, when I step back and look at it, it really if the mayor, his staff, and the union, and the police, really, what are we, what are we here for? I mean, it, we're, 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 if we want to reduce crime, if we want to protect the public, mm -hmm. then everybody better get on the same team and be on the same page. Right. And, and, and to have um, the union taking a shot at the mayor um, is not going to, is not going to, there, there's, there's not going to be any good feelings there um, in terms of moving forward. So, so I guess if we're going to address this issue, everybody better make a commitment to, to securing and making safe the citizens of, of the city mm -hmm. of Albuquerque. Mm -hmm. and, and there's no room for selfishness and, and narrow political agendas or, or, or departmental agendas. It has to be about everybody has to be in the game. And everybody has to be committed to doing something and not just blaming each other because we've seen that already with right. courts and yep. everyone else. That's so right. they need to be on board. Everybody needs to make a commitment to securing the city and, and, and ensuring the safety of our citizens. Mm. If I could add here. something Please. to piggyback on that. Yeah. Is that um, I think what's really important in this conversation is thinking about how much um, poverty mm. and crime go hand in hand and that um, these kinds of system, it's systemic issues that we're really needing to deal with in order to, um, to impact all of, the, all of the many issues that we have to deal That's with right. as a city and as a state. That's right. and, I would, and I would say, you know, what, when we all do better, we all do better at yes. the end of the day. And, right. and I think that's something that we really just need to focus on. Um, I There's a reason people crime. Yes. That's right. right. Exactly yes, right. Exactly. It's just, you know, you've got to get to the root of that. You know, Merritt, interestingly, I'm, I'm, I'm so interested in your opinion on this, uh, in this question. I was really struck by Gilbert Gallegos, the uh, spokesperson. I don't think I've ever read someone being so openly transparent about their role in a situation that's sort of negative uh, in, in a while. That was very interesting to me. It was like I kind of looked around and saw this. Stuff. As a, as a, a person in that profession. How did that strike you as you read that? Very much government communication, public communication from the government, government spokespeople have become very much a one-way yeah. conversation. Yep. 
and we will have press conferences <laughs> until we get the result we want. But oh, if you have a media query, I gotta go. Sorry, <laughs> right. you know, talk to my PIO who will ignore you. Right. Um, <laughs> and and that's um, and that's a real problem. And message alignment. So if everybody's mm. you know everybody's focused on message alignment, message alignment to your point does not mean operational alignment. I see. Because you know BCSO is also in a completely kind of <laughs> different. Right. zone and moving out on their own without a lot of coordination right. so mm -hmm. yeah there's got to be cooperation but I did I was stunned to hear a New Mexico spokesman of course Gilbert Gallegos has been a government spokesperson in New Mexico for a long time mm -hmm. kind of going back to the last century <laughs> and saying we own this this is something I saw um, we're going to deal with it, and so we're in this crisis. You know, it's all emotional now. The numbers were wrong. Mm. I think what Gilbert Gallegos has done is really flatten that mm. by by kind of taking out the gotcha moment and mm. acknowledging, yeah. uh, acknowledging what's happened. And now they're going to go back and look through two years of data. Mm -hmm. And you know, it remains to be seen what we see from the data or how quickly they follow up on it. Mm -hmm. But for right now, in managing this crisis, I think uh, the city's doing a very nice job PR-wise. It struck me the same. I'm interested to hear you say that. It struck mm. me the same. Uh, do you have an opinion on that, by the way? You do this kind of thing sometimes a little bit. So. Yeah, no, I think Gilbert is handling it you know, really well f as far as what he needs to do mm. and, and uh, being transparent and, and maintaining the integrity of the of of the mayor's office and and mm -hmm. and that's you know that's how you do that mm -hmm. um i think still that doesn't take away the need f uh for political um for public officials to show these these um gains and these wins mm -hmm. and so uh the mayor is still going to want to show you know what have I done, and what and what that's what right. can I claim I've done here, sure. and so um, but but that's a question more of the of the political system, right? That 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 he's a part of, yeah. that we're all a part of, mm. and well, I think you couch it in accountability, mm -hmm. um, and if you I think what uh, Gilbert Gallegos did was took some ownership on behalf of the administration of this issue, mm -hmm. and that builds credibility and authenticity and makes people like you better. That's right, and if. Politics is about getting people to like you enough to vote for you. It seems like yeah, it's, it's a good way to go. I'm sensing an interesting opportunity here as well. When I ask all you guys about this as well, the point about the two-year back look, you mm -hmm. know, that's that's a good thing for all of us. But does this give us an opportunity to kind of back up a couple of steps and look at crime in a different way in Albuquerque, much more longitudinal, like what's been going on the past? five, ten years, and what can we think about ten years from now? Do you know what I mean? Just stop with this quarter-by-quarter quarter thing. Well, what and it, 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 it's just not very accurate doing year-to-year, -year, quarterly. That's like a business well, that's metric. The, the you know, criticism just, of the uh, data people at UNM, right? Right, exactly like right. We, we can't mm -hmm. just keep look, taking these snapshot looks. That's and, right. and this also goes to my earlier point of like this political system that we're in, where we're always looking at these short-term gains, um, and, and there's no room for the long-term planning and the right. lo long the long view, right? Uh, because people need to get elected now. That's right. And so right. creating sp like space for that mm -hmm. and, and a real process for that long view is mm -hmm. really, really important. Yeah. The metric I want to see um, is, I believe it was in May 2017, when the police chief and the city announced that they were going to stop arresting um, misdemeanors. Oh, right, right. Mm -hmm. And I... To your point, I'd like to see, and your point, I'd like to see longer-term data, and I'd like to see what that's done to crime. Mm. I'd, li I'd like it to tie it to that. I'd like to see something else tied to when DOJ came in in, what, 2014, 2015. <laughs> what happened since then? We right. know fewer people got shot, right. we think. That's, right. um, that, that's good. Um, 
and evidence-based mm -hmm. communication is always um, the best way to go. There you go. That's all the time we have for this week. But before we leave, though, we're saying goodbye, at least on the panel, to Michael Bird. Michael, you're headed to California for what we hope is a great job opportunity. Even though we'll see you around the station here from time to time, I hope. <laughs> you will. You'll be missed by us and our viewers. Believe me, the amount of feedback we get about you since you've come on has really been very touching, and I'm going to miss you. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to miss everyone. It, this has been a wonderful opportunity, and I appreciate the fact that, that uh, you all opened the door and were interested, and um, I hope that I've shared um, something worthy of your time and your attention. So thank you very much. Thank it's you. It's been great. Absolutely. We'll see you down the road, as they say. Oh, of course. I'm, not, brother. I'm not going far. That's right. That's right. <laughs> thank you all for being here. Thanks again for joining us and for staying informed and engaged. A reminder, connect with us on Facebook where we hold live conversations every Wednesday at noon. We'll see you again next week in Focus. Funding for New Mexico in Focus provided by the McCune Charitable Foundation and viewers like you.